Hi, this is Dave Eisenberg, and you are at the point of learning with my friend Peter Horn. Today, Pete will be talking with Sophie Brickman, author of the book Baby Unplugged One Mother's Search for Balance, Reason, and Sanity in the Digital Age. I've known Pete since he was my high school English teacher, and I've known Sophie since my last week in college, 15 years ago. She and I are now married, living in New York City and figuring out how to raise our three kids together. I resisted eavesdropping when Sophie and Pete recorded this conversation, but I have a feeling, call it father's intuition, that it's going to be a great episode. Enjoy the show. On today's show, Sophie Brickman, a journalist and mother of preschool-aged children who spent two years researching the intersection of parenting and technology. She's got some good news for you. By and large, the way for kids to be optimally set up for life is to be bored and to play outside and to just like be social and to be read to. That's about it. It's not more complicated than that. She's interviewed psychologists, neurologists, pediatricians, and children's book authors, among others, and makers of digital and analog toys. The simpler the toy, the better it is for them because the more they do to the toy, the more imaginative they have to be, the more creative they have to be. All of that stuff is sort of taken away with many types of technology. She also confirmed that the killer app of the 15th century still deserves its acclaim. I spoke to one pediatrician who said, if you asked me to go to the greatest minds in the world and make an object that could make kids smarter and more resilient and more social um, and better modern citizens of the world, they would come back with a book. Um, Like you cannot improve upon a book. There is something that happens when you sit with a little kid in your lap and a book that has pictures where their neurons just go on fire. All that and much, much more. Whether you're helping to raise young kids or not, you're going to love this chat with Sophie Brickman. Hello, and welcome to Season 6 of the Point of Learning Podcast. Since 2017, I've sought through this passion project to bring you the best ideas I encounter about what and why and how we learn. Today, I'm very excited to feature highlights from my interview with Sophie Brickman, because we delve for the first time in POL history into the topic of learning about raising very young children. New season, new turf. Sophie Brickman is a writer, reporter, and editor based in New York City. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Saveur, The San Francisco Chronicle, and the anthology's Best Food Writing and Best American Science Writing, among other places. Currently a columnist at The Guardian, Sophie wrote a monthly column for Elle, interviewing influential women such as Nancy Pelosi and Joyce Carol Oates about their paths to success served as executive editor of a travel publication, launched jointly between Hearst and Airbnb, and was the features editor at Saver. As a staff reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, Sophie won first place in the 2011 Association of Food Journalists feature writing category for a piece about Napa's French Laundry restaurant. I've got a link to that on the show page for this episode. Once upon a time, after attending the French Culinary Institute, she worked the line at Gramercy Tavern, making risotto and lamb ragu for the lunch crowd. Before that, she graduated with honors from Harvard, where she studied social theory and philosophy. Her first book, Baby Unplugged, about the intersection of parenting and technology, which we'll be discussing today, was published by Harper One in fall 2021. Sophie Brickman, welcome. We'll get to your wonderful book in just a minute. But first, I am binging The Bear on Hulu right now. Do you know that show? You you wrote me about it. I forgot to respond. But no, I have not. Now I need to binge it. It's it's (laughs) about a hand-carved sandwich shop in Chicago where they're trying a French brigade setup to Mm -hmm. reorganize the kitchen. So it's not important to get into those details. Super well acted, though. Intense but they're gorgeous shots of food and food prep. So I have been telling myself that it's cool to watch a couple half hour episodes each night as I get ready for this interview with you. 
Yeah. Because because you came to journalism first through your training at the French through sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> French <laughs> well, like ragu, right? But French Culinary Institute, like you, you took a food based path to kind of get into writing. Uh, I think it's so interesting. Would you mind sketching that out briefly, just that sequence? Sure. So, so I it, there was like a very specific moment. I got a fellowship when I was in college to travel to Japan. And I was spending the summer in Japan and it was an absolutely eye-opening and amazing experience. But I was craving um, like mozzarella and pizza and pasta and all stuff that it was very hard for me to find where I was. I was in like relatively rural Japan. And um, I was reading this book called Heat by a guy named Bill Buford. He used to be the fiction editor of The New Yorker, I think. And he's a beautiful writer. And he, the book was essentially about him discovering how much he loves food and then going to Italy and learning how to speak, uh, talk to cook with Mario Batali. This was like years before he was, you know, had all of the scandal around him. And I was like, is there a world in which I could write about food? That seems like such a dream. Like, I don't know how I would ever do that. Um, and I graduated from college and I got a job at a nonprofit and I was making very little money. And so I was living at home with my parents. And after sitting at an office job all day long, I would come home and like change out of my, you know, H&M crappy business wear and cook at my parents' house. I kind of like felt a need to use my hands or to kind of, you know, see something from start to finish. And I really, I was a horrific cook, but I really enjoyed it. And because my parents are wonderful parents, they were like, well, why don't you, if you want to go to culinary school, why don't you go to culinary school at night? Um, and you can, you know, work during the day and go to school at night. And so I went to the French Culinary Institute, which I think has changed its name, but it's in downtown Manhattan. And so I would, you know, leave my office job at five and like, you know, clock in at 545 and cook until 1045, I believe, and then come home um, and do it all over again. It was three nights a week and it was brutal and I loved it. And so I sort of thought I was going to culinary school to learn to write about it. Um, and then I ended up just working the line at a restaurant in New York City um, and really loving the, the camaraderie of it and, and the kind of the pressure and the food. And I learned a lot about food. And then I eventually ended up working as a food journalist um, at the food desk at the San Francisco Chronicle. But I found that this, you know, the background of actually knowing how to chop things and sort of like move around in a, in a professional kitchen made my report that much stronger um, and actually, you know, let chefs let me into their kitchen kind of because they didn't think I was going to wildly screw anything up. Well, I'm going to share on the show page for this episode a link to your award-winning piece on the world-famous California restaurant, The French Laundry, which was so vivid that I had to get up and make a cheese board, you know, to snack, <laughs> to snack on while I read. But it leads me to ask, because you know how to do sophisticated things with food, as in prepare gourmet meals, but also with words, as in write and edit articles and features, and now write a book. Is there any apt comparison for you between those two kinds of creation? Um, or is it all contrast? Is it all, you know, so very different? You know, I think the, 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 the simplest the simplest similarity to, to draw between the two is I, I went from working as a journalist in a newspaper to being an editor at a magazine and then working at another magazine. And that feeling is very similar to me of sort of everybody working for one goal and everybody has their own job to do, but you have to do it in sync. And at the end of, you know, at the end of the meal, everybody needs to feel like it was a cohesive meal. At the end of putting a magazine together, you need to feel like you've had everything start to finish. And it sort of feels of the same piece, even though everybody's doing disparate parts. Um, so I, I mean, I've never really thought about it in that way, but I think the drive and energy of a magazine close where you're up against deadline and everybody's like staying up all night and, and going crazy is very energizing for me. And it's a wildly different experience writing a book, I think, as any author will tell you. It's incredibly solitary um, for, for most of it. Um, even the book that I wrote, which involved a lot of reporting and stuff, it's like you're you're kind of climbing a mountain by yourself um, for, for most of it until you get to the editing phase. And then it becomes very enjoyable and sort of very um, communal. Um, but yes, I would say that kind of working the line and, and working as, as an editor at a magazine, are, are there, there are a lot of similarities there. When you worked at Elle, uh, you wrote a monthly column interviewing influential women, such as uh, sports commentator Jamel Hill, writer Joyce Carol Oates, speaker Nancy Pelosi, public health expert Lena Wen, law professor Anita Hill, dancer Misty Copeland, and actor and New York State gubernatorial hopeful Cynthia Nixon. In all those interviews, 
what did you learn about how to establish the the kind of trust or the rapport you know necessary to have the best possible conversation was i imagine it was a little bit different every time um or was it or how how did you go about trying to get maybe answers from them if they didn't you know like the best possible had the best possible conversation asking for a friend i think um, so first of all, I never was on, on staff at L. I was sort of, I was a contributor there. And I think that I, you know, I respect the magazine a lot. And I think the the fastest way to establish trust with someone is to do all of the reading you can about them so that you're not asking them questions that they have answered a million times before, or so that you can pull something out of something from a long time ago and say, when you were doing this role in, you know, in 1984, blah, blah, blah. It, it means that you have done your work. A lot of the people that I interviewed were very, very, very big names and had been interviewed a million times. And there's a fear as a reporter that if you interview people who are incredibly well-spoken, a lot of their answers can be canned. You know, they've said the same version of an answer a million times. And it can get into a sort of like call and response. And what you want is a real conversation back and forth. And so I just overprepared. I'm like relatively not confident as a as an interviewer. And I got better doing that column. And I've, you know, gotten better um, as I continue to report. But I overprepare. I remember <laughs> there's a, a director named Carrie Fukunaga. And he was kind of like coming up. Uh, I mean, he was probably established, at, relatively established back then, but it was not what he is now. And he was uh, in San Francisco and I was sent to interview him because he directed Jane Eyre, like one version of Jane Eyre that came out, I don't know how many years ago. And for preparation, I reread Jane Eyre, which was like wildly crazy. I should not have had to do that for a relatively short, like style piece or something or arts art piece. And I watched a previous version of Jane Eyre that had been directed and and like and and compared them and did a lot. It was too much. And I remember talking to my father. He was like, "What are you doing? This is like this is like a, a thousand words. <laughs> like you're going to be with him for twenty minutes." But that's what I did. And I think you know the more relaxed you can be in conversations, the better you are. And I found that it calms me down to have read as much about these people as I can. So with Nancy Pelosi, like she wrote an autobiography, I believe I read that. Like I try, I try to read as much as I can beforehand. That's, uh, that's how, I mean, oddly enough, I did, I read Jane Eyre to prepare for this interview too. Oh, thank but you. I found the bear to be more fun. So <laughs> I'm looking at the titles of some of your recent columns last year um, for for the Guardian. I'm gonna here's three of them. If COVID's new normal makes you even more anxious than before, you're not alone. Does overhearing your spouse's work calls put you on edge? Me too. I found out why. After two daughters, I had my first son. The reaction was different and revealing. So my question is, like, as as with your book that we're about to talk about, Baby Unplugged, um, there's a way that you situate yourself in your own story as a key element of the piece. Sometimes, um, as a reader, I love that, uh, you know. But but tell me about this choice. It's um, it. There, it brings up a, a million questions about what is and is not okay for somebody to write about. Is it okay for me to write about my kids before they are at a, of an age to say that that they want to be written about or my husband or, or whatever else? What I've found is that my I write relatively humorously, or I try to, um, and I poke fun at myself and at my family in a, in a hope, but not, you know, bad way. Um, and I find that as a reader, I enjoy human stories more than anything. So yes, I want the reporting and I want the headline and I want the data having been crunched and, and, and worked through by an author. But I find it easier to get into stories often, particularly about parenting and families when it actually involves the, the first person. And there's beautiful stuff that is written that has nothing to do with the reporter, um, for sure. But the way that I figured out how to do Baby Unplugged, but sort of to use my own experience as a jumping off point for asking a bunch of questions about a given topic. And I found that, you know, 
my fears and concerns and questions were relatively universal for parents who were bringing up kids in a digital age. And so I felt like, you know, it's comforting to read a story about somebody where you're like, oh, she's in the same position. Like, okay, like I'm not alone. I get it. Um, And so that's my, that was my decision. I think that there are there are there there are points on the spectrum. You know, like Nora Ephron famously said, like everything is copy. You know, I think it was her like grandmother was on her, her mother was on her deathbed and was like, use this. It's like that. That's you know that that's one end of it, and the other end of it is like you cannot have a personality in your writing. And I think I'm somewhere in the middle. But for sure, I mean, like I'm very careful about how I write about my family and like my my husband, who I write about a lot and is a character. Like for sure, reads everything and gives it a stamp of approval. And he's never once said no. I'm not like you know using him in a particularly uh, provocative way. Um, but, but yeah, so, so I, I, I think my, my stuff is sort of a meld of, of memoir and reporting and research. As I said, I really do enjoy it. I mean, it helps. I happen to know your husband, um, yes. you know, and so reading about him in this book, for example, you know, I have to say, when you say you try to be humorous, I, you know, it was not only chuckling, but like literally laughing out loud sure. sometimes. And, and of course, just from, um, you know, from a story standpoint, um, He's an important foil. Absolutely. Because he has this he has this heavy tech bias mm-hmm. and you have kind of an anti tech orientation, let's say. Absolutely. Um, in terms of how you feel about it. Like he uses the tech um, and you you know, you explain this in the book. I've, I've seen you talk about it in the interviews is like, you know, him kind of being an inspiration when you had a child, you being new parents trying to figure out like what do we do with this little tiny human we're responsible for part of his impulse was like, well, let's get some tech and start measuring. And then, and then the questions began for you, like, where can it help? And, you know, so look mm-hmm. at that as promised, here we are talking, <laughs> talking about baby unplugged, which I knew would make for a great conversation between us as soon as I learned that it would be published, uh, which is about a year ago now when I, mm-hmm. when I found out, I had the pleasure of getting to know your eldest child, Ella, who's now five, a little bit, uh, via Zoom during the first pandemic yeah. winter. So I've been persuaded for a while now that you and Dave are pretty <laughs> amazing parents. And so your exploration, well, that kid didn't come out of nowhere. Um, She's all uh, herself. I don't know. Uh, but, we don't do anything. <laughs> but thank you. So like your exploration, though, about how tech should be integrated into kids' lives, uh, where it could help, where it could hurt, as you note at the outset. I knew that your that your account would be carefully researched and thoroughly informative, and I was right about that. But I also want to ask, because you are a person of many parts, you know, a trained chef, a journalist, a writer, an editor, a wife, daughter, sister, great British bake-off yeah. enthusiast, uh, in addition to mother, how has it been, this experience of writing and talking about this book, which foregrounds your identity as a mother? Uh, vis-a-vis the other identities that you have? I mean, it's a fascinating question and one that I'm actually grappling with with the next Guardian column, which should be out shortly. Um, I read a book called uh, The Baby on the Fire Escape. It just came out um, in April and it's about motherhood and creativity. And so the biographer uh, has about six or seven biographies of like very important uh, women writers and creators. Alice Neal, who's a portrait artist, uh, Ursula Le Guin, Susan Sontag, Doris Lessing, like a bunch of others. And she, her exploration, which took her 10 years to write, was sort of how did different women treat being a mother and being a professional? And like where in the Venn diagram of creativity and motherhood, like where does it overlap and how does it overlap? And it's something that I basically like read from start to finish and then turned again and read it again with a pen and then called her and was like, can I interview you? This is like, it changed my life because it's very hard. And I think my my choice has been to integrate the two. So it's like, I used to be a journalist and I wrote about what was interesting to me, which was food at the time. And then after five or six years of writing about like Brussels sprouts and avocados, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need to pivot somehow. Um, And then I started writing about travel a little bit. And then I had Ella and as happened with, as happens with many parents, but for it certainly happened to me, suddenly like my focus just zoomed in on this little person. And I was like, wait, I don't like my role in the world has changed and I don't really know anything about you and I don't know anything about me in this role and I'm not sure what I'm doing. And so my the way that I kind of dug myself out of that anxiety and confusion was by reporting it and kind of making it a subject of of my journalistic background. Um, 
And so that was the, you know, the, the, the book was the result of that. I, was, I wrote a couple columns and, and realized that people were also grappling with this kind of these questions. But in terms of my role as a mother versus sort of writing about what, what I write about, like I've chosen to meld the two for now. We'll see how long I can keep this going. Um, and then when I get, you know, bored of my kids, we'll, I'll pivot to something else, though I don't see that happening anytime soon. Researching this book, you read books, uh, other books, histories, um, uh, studies uh, voraciously, but also interviewed experts from toy makers to app developers to pediatricians to specialists in child development. Sometimes it was a phone call, but many times you traveled, uh, for example, to Rochester, New York, not far from where I'm sitting, uh, the strong museum of play, which my wife, Robin, and I uh, had to borrow our niece and nephew to check out extensively as much as we wanted uh, several years ago. We, th- we thought we'd, that we'd like bringing them for undercover work. Uh, we really just wanted to check out the Museum of Play. We didn't meet with the curators like you did. Um, you also, for example, went to visit uh, best-selling author Sandra Boynton in, at her home in Connecticut. For all the interviews you mentioned in the book, you distilled the essential uh, information and set the scene such that I felt like I was right there with you. But I wanted to ask is there one of these conversations that still stands out for you? Uh, I'm not asking you to play favorites, but was any just so surprising or rich or, or the context of being in the place, if it was an in-person interview, that you still find yourself thinking about it from time to time? I think two of them stand out to me for sure and for very different reasons. The first is you mentioned Sandra Boynton. So like anybody who has a kid under the age of two probably has her board books. And I didn't really know them until I had kids. But now we have like books, bookshelves of them and they're really funny and they're really charming and they're like for little, little, little kids. Um, and this this woman, Sandra, is incredibly prolific. So there are a bazillion of them and there's music and there's all this stuff. And she being able to be in the space where she works, which is she has a barn that's that's connected to her house. that's like the next building over. Um, and she really is like she has a team of people that I think, you know, helps for, promote stuff, but it's mostly just her sitting in this rural barn in Connecticut, coming up with very funny and zany characters. Um, And she's incredibly warm and very welcoming. And when I visited her, I happened to like catch her the day after she had babysat for her newborn grandson. And so she was like a little bleary eyed and also kind of in the state of, of being around very, very little kids, the way that I feel like I have been for like constantly for the past six years. Um, But she's very smart. Um, I think there's sort of a misperception that writing children's books is sort of simple. It's like, oh, it's just a simple thing that you do. It's incredibly hard both to, you know, capture their attention and also keep the parents involved. And she manages to do it in books that are like, you know, 10 pages long and each page is like four sentences, four words on a page. They're very simple. They're funny. Her her drawings are very charming. Um, and so that was a wonderful interview to kind of see how amazing it is that she can do all this kind of in her head in this barn by herself um and she had you know like I was like picked up little things when I was there and I think I mentioned this in the in the book I don't remember but she had like she opened up the fridge to get some milk and there was a like a a Mickey Mouse pancake and I was like of course you're you bake pancakes and they have ears on them like I don't know who that was for but like obviously that's your type of pancake um and then the other interview that I absolutely adored doing was Alison Gopnik. Um, she's just sort of like a powerhouse in terms of like for her intellect. She's Adam Gopnik, Gopnik's sister. She's a very, very lauded developmental psychologist. And she runs a lab in Berkeley. Um, so I went out there and interestingly, like, you know, in terms of talking about how to get good interviews, it's like I basically towards the end of our interview, I thought it was the end. And I was like, this has been okay, but it hasn't been amazing. And then... I don't, I actually don't remember, but something changed in our dynamic and I had put my notepad away, but I still had my voice recorder on and we started talking about some other slightly tangential thing and then ended up talking for like another 45 minutes. And that was where the meat of the conversation came from. Um, But she, you know, she has written wonderful books about developmental psychology. She has a, like an incredibly um, reasonable take about parenting. Um, her book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, I cite multiple times, and it has like the basic premise is that, you know, parenting as a verb is relatively new in our lexicon. Like you didn't parent, you you raised kids. And the way that people think about parenting often is sort of like being a carpenter where you like carve away and you make a perfect specimen by making the right choices. 
Um, and what she says is if you treat it more like being a gardener where you have a plot of land and you give the plants or your kids, as the metaphor goes, like the, the environment in which to explore and grow in an optimal way, which means you give them some sunlight, you give them some water, like you just kind of let them be, that it's a kind of a different way of looking at, at the idea of parenting and it sort of upends people's philosophies, particularly since she has shown in many ways that all of these minute decisions you think you're making that are gonna have an impact have no impact whatsoever. You know, once various basic needs are met, like whether or not you like let the kid cry it out or sleep in your bed or nurse or don't nurse or whatever, all these things that that parents can tend to get very anxious about, like there's no discernible difference however many years out. Um, which I took to be a very comforting uh, notion. So those two, I think, for sure. But, I mean, I loved all my interviews. I really did. I wanted to ask about just one other one because the you know, I was delighted to see Ellen Langer uh, come up, the mindfulness expert, because she's somebody I've admired uh, for a long time. Was there anything, you know, like, I don't know, anything sparkly about that conversation? I think it was a phone conversation, right? You didn't... It was a phone call. So, like, I remember that conversation vividly because, so I got the book deal right before my second was born. So that was, like, a month before she was born. And so I had this insane notion that I was going to be writing and reporting, like, through the entirety of her first year. I ended up finishing the book on time but like the first three months are just like you're not sleeping and you're covered and spit up and you're like you're completely delirious and so I spent like the month of she was probably two and a half months old and I was like I'm gonna report I'm gonna get all this stuff done so I was like sleeping in one hour chunks and I had Ella who was at that point three years old um and I was like I'm just gonna like interview someone I have to interview somebody about like being mindful and I'm like anxious and I feel crazy like who should I interview and I like typed in like important mindfulness, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And her name popped up and I didn't know that much about her. And I like quickly read her, her CV and was like, oh, she's like legit. And I emailed her and she wrote back and was like, I'd love to talk. At which point I was like, okay, I'm going to start researching about her. But in the course of that, I told Dave, who was a, a psychology major in college, he was like, oh my God, you're talking to Ellen Langer? I was like, yeah. He was like, she, she's gonna. She said yes to an interview. I was like, yeah. She, he was like, she is a huge deal. And so I started reading her stuff, and then I fell in love with all of her. What you know, kind of what she stands for. Um, and the conversation. She's very. She was very approachable. She doesn't have children of her own, but she was like, I have. You know, I think she has like stepkids and dogs and something else. And she was like, but she's very. Uh, she reminded me in certain ways of my mother. She's sort of like no bullshit. Um, and and very brassy and funny. Um, so I was very grateful that she took this sort of cold email from somebody who I'm sure the email was just like delirious. I don't even, I can't, I will cringe to read what I wrote because I was literally operating on like one hour of sleep a night. But she was very gracious, even though I was probably a mess. Sophie's book provides a capsule introduction to Ellen Langer's work on mindfulness and the mind-body connection, including Langer's research-based conviction that if the mind is fully in a healthy place, the body will be as well. According to Langer, part of mindfulness is the ability to think unconventionally and not just parrot back what you've been taught or mindlessly trust what someone tells you. This ability helps keep us alive, aware, and happy. As Sophie writes, it's a sense children are born with that's rooted out after just a few years on Earth. If we can emulate them, find the beauty in changing our underwear five times before breakfast, in slathering ourselves with sun lotion at night, we might just find ourselves feeling more grounded, more present. It's me again, Dave. Because I show up periodically in Sophie's writing, Pete thought it would be fun for me to pop back into the show to do a Patreon ad. I'll let you be the judge of that, but the deal is is that I'm not only a tech enthusiast, my day job now is as a venture capitalist, which means I spend all day thinking about worthwhile investments. But when Pete's podcast joined the Patreon platform two years ago, I didn't have to think about it at all. I immediately signed up, which you can too, by clicking the link on the show page. To be clear, I'm not talking about lots of money here. I kick in a few dollars each month because I believe in doing a little bit to help Pete spread great ideas about what and how and why we learn. You can join the many other listeners who have decided to do that too, giving 3 or 5 or $20 a month, or actually whatever amount you choose, or make a one-time donation. Click that link on the show page to learn more. If you care about lively ideas, curated in an evergreen format that you can go back and enjoy again months and years later, this podcast is a good investment. Back to the show.
Another phone call, um, you, you spoke with a children's media historian, uh, I don't know, Hella Strangard Jensen. You called her in Denmark where she works at Aarhus University. I should back up and say that you wrote that like implicit in every conversation I'd had with experts, and we're talking, so whether doctors, professors, content creators, there was kind of this notion that quality, as in quality content, generally meant like educational. Kids are, you know, if, 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 if Sesame Street produces quality content, it's because kids are walking away like with some with some basic uh, numeracy or literacy or something like that, some of these basic skills. But Jensen, this professor that you, the media historian and professor that you talked to in Denmark, she emphasizes, you know, like the value of giggling um, and silliness in young children's programming and not worrying that Scandinavian shows might not like prioritize reading skills so early. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, particularly in America, and there are many reasons for the case, why this may be the case, but there's a lot of emphasis on getting your kids ahead early. Um, the earlier, the better. So there was, you know, Baby Einstein, which I think was, you know, debunked in court. Um, there's, you know, Your Baby Can Read, similarly, like, debunked, and they were, like, all fraudulent. Um, it's like the idea is that you can optimize every moment of your kid's life starting at birth or even in utero. And then the kids will, you know, get into an Ivy League school faster and be happier and more successful and whatever else and kind of be at the head of the rat race. Um, and actually Gopnik, who we spoke about before, you know, she had a very smart posit about why that is the case. And she said, you know, that like the in, the rapid in inequality gap that is getting bigger and bigger and bigger means that the middle class is winnowing and people are afraid that their kids are going to fall out of the middle class. And so they're like, there's this race to keep up and like kids are born behind in various ways. And, you know, how can we catch up? Um, and so the result of that often is that when you come to technology, which is where my focus was, there are programs and apps and um, you know, ebooks and stuff that are very educational. And I'm putting that in quotes because it's like, what does educational mean for a kid who's preschool, you know, who's under the age of five? And I talked to neurologists about actually what kids can learn from screens and what they should be doing. And by and large, you know, the way for kids to be optimally set up for life is to be bored and to play outside and to just like be social and to be read to. I'm like, that's about it. Like, it's not it's not more complicated than that. The simpler the toy, the better it is for them because the more they do to the toy, the more imaginative they have to be, the more creative they have to be. Um, all of that stuff is sort of taken away with many types of technology. And when it comes to programs, you know, there are, you know, valid reasons that, that Sesame Street can be wonderful and also reasons where it, it, you're not exactly sure if it's the, the best thing for your kid to be watching. But the idea that you can put your kid in front of Sesame Street and they are benefiting simply because they are learning a number or a letter, it's something that that she took issue with because she said, you know, I like to watch um, television shows with my kid that I like to watch so the two of us can sit down and laugh over something together. And that's a value that she thinks is important. And, you know, having done... I don't know if you need research behind to back that up, but if you need the research, I did it. And it's like, if you are, you know, co-engaging with your kid about on anything, uh, cooking something with them, playing with a toy with them, reading with them, watching television with them, playing an app with them, even though it's sort of harder to play together, those are all moments where you're talking to them and interacting with them. And that's all good stuff, like really good stuff. So I think that in America, this focus on education and success is very, very narrow and very damaging because it teaches parents that they need to optimize these moments of childhood um, when in fact, what's best for the kid is really to kind of have free play. Um, you know, she, she said, um, Hella told me that her, uh, you know, where, where, she, where she lives, her son isn't learning how to read until seven. Like, that's just how it goes. Like, you just wait until that age to, like, sit down with your letters. Um, and when you look at, you know, uh, achievement-based, uh, you know, how well kids are doing in school, like, for sure, the Scandinavian kids are always off the charts compared to Americans. And so there's a question about what, you know, how, what we should be cultivating. My takeaway from her was, like, if you enjoy something and you want to watch it with your kid and it's not quote unquote educational, like go ahead and watch it with them. Like make sure that it's not 
some horrible shoot 'em up film. But if you're watching with them, it, it can be really wonderful. And Ella, for ye- for years, loved the Muppets, like various Muppets things, which are just silly and charming. But there, I don't know what educational value there is in watching like the Manamana skit over and over again. But what she and I were learning was like we both find this funny and it's silly, and that's good too. Manamana. There's two major sections of the book. There's parent tech, where you address the tech that's marketed to parents, including devices, furnishing data on all your like newborns every sleeping moment and so forth. Uh, the second half of the book is baby tech, which deals with things like smart toys and interactive reading devices, uh, more for the kids themselves. I wanted to kind of pull just w- one of the topics from each half and ask you to riff on it a little bit. You've got a chapter in that in the parent tech stuff um, where you where you get into the question of baby paparazzi. And the paparazzi, of course, in this case, are the parents uh, who can't resist taking all the pictures they possibly can of their impossibly cute uh, children. And you ask, if you're capturing the moment, are you ever in it? Um, There's a tension between documenting the moment, being present to the moment, which has this other layer of complication with kids, because, of course, there are privacy concerns when it comes to sharing images of them online. Uh, so can you speak on some of the things that you considered as you sorted this out for yourself? Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, the idea that I'm now not going to take my phone out and take a million photos of my son who's about to turn one is ridiculous. Like I have a billion photos that I'm never really going to look at in any real way. <laughs> um, but my question mostly was like, now that we have these little devices in our pockets all the time, what is it doing both to them to constantly be photographed, which kind of came up because, you know, Ella was able to like look up and pose before she could tie her shoes. Like they they know constantly that they're being filmed in some way, which is kind of dystopian and weird. And I kind of wanted to investigate what like that meant for the kids. Um, And then also what it meant for us to be constantly documenting it. And I kind of wanted to take a second and muse on why I felt the need to be documenting all of these things. Like, what if I didn't catch her first step? Uh, like, that's okay. Um, and so the, the, the reporting led me to speak to a, a bunch of different people, including a guy named John Palfrey, who is um, a, he was like an internet law expert and, and, and the head of the MacArthur Foundation and the head of, I think, Exeter or Andover for a while. He's a fascinating guy. Um, he's just great. Um, and he, yeah, he wrote a book called Born Digital, which sort of, you know, that, which addresses this in part, but you know, what happens with privacy concerns and like, my kids are too little to know, um, you know, and there are a lot of people on Instagram who are putting photos of their kids up there and that's a lot part of their brand. Um, and like, what, what are the implications of that? And so, you know, we spoke about, um, I don't know if I talked about this with John, but like there are questions of what the future holds in terms of. Um, you know, economic inequality where people can will be able to pay for their privacy. So you'll be able to pay and say, you know, I don't want any photos of my children on the internet, for example. Um, and if you can't pay, then like, that's just how it goes. Um, so it's very, um, it, it's, it's a scary notion of what can happen um, if you're posting photos of your kids left and right, which, which a lot of people do. But I think um, for me, the most interesting question f- to to delve into was why I felt the need to capture it. And if, if, you know, just letting the kids' lives unfold where I'm like occasionally catching a photo could, could kind of do the same thing um, and, and make me happier and kind of calmer in the moment, which, which was the case. Um, So now I try to keep my phone away as much as I can. I mean, like all of us, and then I fail, but, but I try. (laughs) You had a nice example of, um, of your mom's approach, Mm -hmm. right? That, that she had a very balanced, you know, that she was very selective and curated some albums when you were mm-hmm. growing up. And so there, you were documented, but it didn't feel like there were, it was just like endless pictures all the time. And I think she also made the choice, you know, not to have you like pose, yes. right? Like she, or, or, or not have you smile. Right, right? I mean, like they were very kind to... of like stark black and white, kind of like more like Sally Mann who takes like photos of her <laughs> kids that are like, you know, where they're like running around naked in the woods. Like that was like closer to what <laughs> my fo- family photos were. Like we never posed in front of monuments or anything, but like, 
you know, the, you know, or you're reminding me there was a, a part of that too about like the 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 difference between art and sort of documenting and where you know the amount of photos that I take versus the photos that I print out and like will put on the wall. It's crazy. Like we have, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of photos where I just don't. I I, I make them mindlessly. I take them mindlessly. And my my mother, who was taking photos on a Leica camera and developing them herself, you know, like she had to be very particular about what she took photos of. And then she went through on these like contact sheets with a red wax pencil and like decided which one she wanted to print out and got them printed and put them in the albums. It's like a thing that we don't do, this generation doesn't do. Um, I think a little bit to your our detriment, collective detriment, but... I mean, I don't have time to make a photo album. I just, I'm not gonna do it. Um, but you know, maybe sometime in the future, I will get out my wax pencil. When we were when we were talking last month, just kind of spitballing about what we might talk uh, discuss today, I hadn't yet gotten to the chapter. It's actually your last chapter. Um, where you focus on reading and reading-related tech. But you predicted I'd find it interesting and how right you were. <laughs> reading is, is so much more complex a task than we generally consider. Um, so, for example, I didn't do it every year as a, as a high school English teacher, but a couple of times just to drive this point home for students and to make it strange again. I would present juniors or seniors with small examples of different kinds of texts, like a cookbook, like a recipe, right? Like a single panel cartoon, like a snippet of dramatic writing, like maybe a very, like a page of a scene from a play, a short poem, a news article, a map. And I would ask the kids to think and write and, and talk about what is actually involved in reading each of those. I mean, those are very different kind of texts, but reading is the name that we give that process that we apply to making sense of them. In each case, we're doing something different, but it's all called reading. I think I do want to go ahead and spoil that your research <laughs> led you to conclude that old-fashioned books, at least for the time being, still have an edge uh, over apps and tablets, if you have the choice, that is, if you have books around. For sure. So, so I mean, like for little little kids, and I, I you know I asked the same question to many of the people I interviewed at the end of my my interviews, which was like, what is the single best piece of tech that you've seen for children? Um, and you know, depending on who I spoke to, I got wildly different answers from people in Silicon Valley to neurologists, whatever. Um, but I spoke to one pediatrician who said, you know, if you asked me to go to the greatest minds in the world and make, you know, an object that could make kids smarter and more resilient and more social um, and better modern citizens of the world, um, they would come back with a book. Um, like you cannot improve upon a book and it's really the best thing for young kids. And that was something that like was iterated over and over again in, in different interviews that I had. Um, there is something that happens when you sit with a little kid in your lap and a book that has pictures where their neurons just go on fire um, and they, you know, make connections and their synapses fire in some like amazing way. And when you get into like the nitty gritty of the neurology, which I did, it's really amazing what has to happen to put, you know, strings of letters into form sounds that then you can say out loud. And like, I'm watching, you know, Ella can now read, but the last year when she was learning how to read, it's amazing um, how, how she does it and how she can recognize certain words and how she can sound things out and how it just suddenly it's like rolling down a hill. It just goes faster and faster and faster. Um, and you can see the connections being made. That doesn't happen on a tablet when lots of other things are going on. And for sure, there are ways to kind of dumb down tablets so it's as close to a book as possible. Um, so there aren't animations, which are kind of too hot for kids. Um, but the, you know, the perfect medium for kind of enjoying something and teaching kids about how important words are and teaching them like lessons about how the world works. Like it's all in a picture book. Um, and there was a study that was done um, that they, they ended up kind of calling it shorthand, like the Goldilocks study, which is they put little kids like preschoolers through MRIs to see what was going on when they heard a story just orally. So they just heard it, there was, they couldn't see anything when they were shown an animation of the story and when they were read a picture book. Um, and 
uh, the animation was too hot. Like their neurons were kind of like firing in a crazy way and they couldn't exactly, they couldn't focus on the words and the story. Um, oral stuff at young ages was too cold. Like they needed a visual to, to say like, okay, that's what a rabbit looks like. That's what a little mole rat looks like or whatever the case is. Um, and that picture books was just just right for them. And that like neurologically things were firing in the right way. And like to, to you know, the guy who said the, the most important piece of technology is a book also said to me, he's like, yeah, you can go to neurology and you can go in deep into the science for this, but you can also just look at a kid who's engaged with a book and you can see that they're happy and you can see kind of that they're calm and then they're not jangled. And if you take the book away, they don't have a panic attack. They like move to the next thing. Try doing that with an iPad where they've just been playing a game, you know? <laughs> it's like it's like World War Three. So I think... You know, it's just intuitively there is something wonderful about a book, too. The subtitle of your book, One Mother's Search for Balance, Reason, and Sanity in the Digital Age, you touch on these things throughout, but I love the way that your conclusion kind of brings brings things together. Because there's this through line, of course, of parental anxiety. Uh, you feature your own worries and questions throughout. You're very honest and candid about them. And I would have to think that you know, other people's anxiety about baby tech, uh, parent tech, is a major reason that most readers would pick up, would gravitate toward your book. For this reason, I love this arc uh, that, that comes to kind of completion in the conclusion uh, where you talk about balance and sanity, granting yourself permission to feel sometimes that you're getting it wrong as a parent, which doesn't mean you are, of course, but for instance, you notice that you note that at least five of the experts that you interviewed said in various ways that between parents and children, friction is not only part of the process of parenting, but in fact important and beneficial to both parties. Could I ask you to read the next few sentences there? Sure. Embrace the middle of the night wake ups, the tantrums, the 14 minutes it takes to choose a sock, and you'll become the kind of parent who really knows your child who can help prepare her to thrive in a brave new technology-fueled world we are only beginning to understand. While I thought I'd been writing about how to navigate the technology-bombarded world of parenting, in fact, I'd been exploring what it means to be a parent and how to raise a human I actually wanted to hang out with. Friction and discomfort are all part of that process. I'll note that on page 293, where you stopped reading, that may be my favorite single page of the book because you also declare that if you're going to help your children actively learn and grow, and I quote, I, the parent, also have to actively learn and actively grow. This is just, it's so critical for any kind of teacher, I think, this acknowledgement that if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to take on this role of, uh, you know, presuming to help somebody else develop, I better make I better make sure that I'm developing myself and that I'm, you know, and that I'm growing. Um, and of course, it would be the most natural thing, you know, not to focus on that part as a parent. But I love that you, you know, kind of meditate on it uh, at the end. Is there anything else that you might add along those lines? Any updates or insights, a greater patience for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, it's easier to write it than it is to internalize it. Um, and particularly like with a third kid, you know, I sort of joke, it's like, well, I wrote the book before the third kid. Now, like everybody's plugged in all the time because that's how I can function. But that's not really the case. I think that it's it's helpful to know that everything is a phase in parenting and like just when you think, you know, they won't be able to play alone on their own, like they learn how to do it. Um, I think a lot of it is cutting yourself some slack um, and sort of picking one or two people to ask questions to and not taking so much information. There's so much information out there about what you should do and there's so much judgment about you, what, what you might be doing wrong. Um, I think like you start certainly with three you start to like internalize that friction and discomfort are all part of the process it's like you just have to embrace the chaos a little bit um and it can become very enjoyable um you know i i handed the manuscript in like right the week i think when when cuomo shut down new york because of covid and so it was like everybody's worlds got completely upheaved um and the our reliance on technology completely changed and how we viewed technology became a much more of a necessity um, and we were in, stuck in a little apartment with two little kids and not really allowed to go outside. And so like it was a real, it really put these conclusions I came to to the test of, you know, how, how to be as graceful as possible as you navigate, you know, becoming a parent and raising little kids. 
Um, and I think, yeah, like just knowing that you you know your kid pretty well and that you're it's okay if you feel overwhelmed and you're not exactly sure if you're doing the right thing. Like everybody else feels like that. And if they say that they aren't, they're lying, I think. That's what I tell myself. That's it for today's show. Thanks so much to Sophie Brickman for joining me. You can learn more about her and find more of her work at sophiebrickman.com. Her book, Baby Unplugged, is available at your favorite bookseller. Today's episode features an instrumental version of Crack a Bottle, Run a Bath by Schaefer James, with fiddle parts by yours truly. Schaefer has also graciously allowed me to use versions of his songs Weight of the World and Villainous Thing as intro and outro music for going on six seasons now, and he's about to tour yet again. Show dates and more at SchaeferJames.com. Finally, thanks to you for listening and supporting this podcast in whatever way you can. If you know a new parent targeted by ads about baby tech, please go ahead and share this episode with them. It will mean most coming from you. Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, and mixed by me. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you in just about a month with a new episode featuring award-winning actor and playwright, Ellen McLaughlin. See you then. And then go to Bluetooth, and it says it's connected. Right? Are you sure you're on AirPods yes. 3 or AirPods 2? AirPods 3. Are they pro or regular? No, these are the right ones, and they're connected. You're going to try to do this with regular AirPods? <laughs> what the hell kind of tech show is this? <laughs> you mentioned that your dad, who worked at TV for many years, helped to develop, among other characters, the Swedish yeah. chef on yeah. the Muppets? The Okay, so my question is what? <laughs> and isn't that like racist? <laughs> Go ahead. Like what? I just... defer to him. You can interview him next. I, I pass. I plead the fifth. Um, I don't know. <laughs> do you know like that? Do you know like the inspiration? No, like, I just, just he like, worked with Jim like, Henson when... for like a little bit of time, like back in the day. Why was, okay, why was he Swedish? I mean, why not? It's such a good, uh, such a fabulous. Because you could just crazy make. Crazy gobbledygook, you could just make I guess. Balls out I don't of the know. Time. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. That was wonderful. Bravo. I loved that. Oh, it was great. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good, It though. could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. It was terrible. Get him away. Hey, boo. Boo.